Welcome to the Passion Harvest podcast audio series. Thank you so much for listening today. I am Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. If you would like to watch this episode, please head over to our Passion Harvest channel on YouTube. We love taking you on a journey to discover your passions. Thanks for listening. Hello, passionate listeners. Welcome to Passion Harvest. I am Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. Thank you so much for joining us today, tonight, wherever you are in the world. And if you like this episode, please do subscribe to the channel or the podcast. I can't believe I've kept this man waiting for a few minutes. I got the times wrong and I had to put some makeup on. He is the famous, if you don't, I'm sure you already know who he is, Raymond Moody. Raymond Moody has researched the most fascinating frontiers of life and death and life's greatest mysteries. In 1975, Raymond Moody coined the term near-death experience in his book Life After Life, which has sold over 13 million copies. Raymond has heard thousands of accounts of near-death, shared death and after-death experiences, and his interest is in the afterlife has become such a focus of his life's work. And of course, he's one of his passions. Raymond has both a PhD in philosophy and as an MD and has a strong interest in how medical realities intersect with the realm of philosophy. Raymond is the author of multiple publications. I think it's 12 or 13. He is a professor, public speaker and grief counsellor. Throughout his five decade career, he has explored themes related to the transpersonal aspects of death, dying and grief. His book, Glimpses of Eternity, discusses the phenomena of shared death experiences. His inquiry into past lives in de- is detailed in his book, Coming Back and Share Methods for Evoking the Dead from Ancient Greece to Modern Times in the book, Reunions. Raymond's PhD in philosophy focuses on unintelligibility. I'm glad I said that right. And his latest book, Making Sense of Nonsense, discusses what nonsense teaches us about consciousness and altered states of being. This is his story and this is his passion. Raymond, welcome to Passion Harvest. I'm so honored and excited to have you on the show. I am so happy to be with you, Louisa. (laughs) Thank you so much for this invitation. I can't believe I kept you waiting. I really, really do apologize. Let's dive right in. (laughs) I'm not from New York. I'm from the South. In the South, I understand manana very well. I just said Raymond's the most patient man I've ever met. <laughs> um, since you're, you are an expert, what, how would you define a near-death experience? Well, as I learned from Plato when I was 18 years old, um, occasionally when somebody almost dies and is revived, they have these astonishing experiences which convinces them that there is a world beyond and i'd learned about these as 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 they were fascinated to fascinating to the early greek philosophers like plato and heraclitus and uh, democritus the atomist but then three years later uh, i always assumed it was just something from ancient greece but in 1965 i learned that a professor of psychiatry at the University of Virginia, where I was a student, Dr. George Ritchie had had such an experience. And George was very open to the students. So I went and listened to him and I was just blown away. I mean, I I didn't know what to make of his experience, but I knew that he was a genuine person. Mm -hmm. And uh, subsequently I got my PhD in philosophy and I was a philosophy professor. I heard these same stories from my students and from my fellow faculty members. And as you mentioned, subsequent to that time, I've interviewed literally thousands and thousands of people from all over the world who've had this um, same kind of pattern of experience. Mm. It's absolutely fascinating. And, and, and um, it, obviously you have your skeptics out there, but it just can't be made up. There definitely is a life after we pass the physical body. Yes, and you know, you mentioned that word skeptic. And, um, you know, one of the fascinating things about this, Louisa, is that the people who characterize themselves as skeptics don't know what they're talking about because the, the skeptical movement was uh, formed by Pyrrho, the uh, Greek philosopher. From, he was 
at his height about 30 years after, 20 years after Aristotle died. And the skeptical movement is um, the idea that you pursue your inquiry vigorously, but at the end you avoid making a conclusion. That's what skepticism means. So when somebody tells you, I'm a skeptic about these near-death experiences, I think it's just the chemistry of the brain. If you unpack what that person says, it's I'm a person who doesn't draw conclusions and my conclusion is such and such. So that group to me is, can be discounted because they don't know what they're talking about. And the, the, um, the objection they always make is that this is oxygen, oxygen deprivation to the brain, right? Oh, but yes. the difficulty is that identically the same experience unfolds to people who are at the bedside of someone else who dies, who themselves are not ill or injured. And yet they have concurrently the same experience. So there are some other factor or factors involved than oxygen deprivation to the brain. I think that's just kind of a red herring. Yes, I agree. So since you ha have interviewed, I, I've, I don't know if you haven't, do you know how many people you've interviewed on near-death experience? Thousands. <laughs> thousands and thousands. Is there... Yeah one or two that stand out significantly for you, testimonials of a, of a death experience or a near-death experience? Well, I guess not really, because, you know, there's <laughs> such uniformity. You, you know, you remember each person individually, but what's really striking is the, the commonality of these experiences that all over the world where I've been, even to China and to India and, uh, uh, places that are very well much out of the western orbit uh, people give you this same kind of story which is um, fascinating to me I mean I don't I was not raised in a religious family and, and I can honestly tell you that Plato was the first person I ever encountered who took the notion of an afterlife seriously before I read Plato I assumed that it was just a joke that people made but um, these 50 plus years I've studied this, I've just reached the point where I give up. I mean, you can't really draw a logical conclusion from this because our logic is not set up to do it. But in fact, I don't know what else to say, except that apparently to my utter astonishment, uh, there is an afterlife. I, I mean, I'm forced to say that out of honesty because I just can't think of anything else to say. Yes, and so I, 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 I'm assuming you're not, because many people are afraid of dying, I'm assuming you don't have a fear of death? I'm not afraid of death, it's life that scares me. I, you know, I've had a lot of people in my practice over the years who come to me with fear of death. And it's very interesting people, everybody has a different take. You know, some people are afraid of obliteration. Some people are afraid of being separated from their loved ones. Other people are afraid of hell or what the, the thing that's and uncomfortable to me about death is that I don't want any pain in the process. And, you know, I would like to stay around till I get my kid, my younger kids a little bit on the road, but no, I'm not afraid of death. Hmm. And, and I'm not macho. There's plenty of things that scare me, but death is not one of them. Yeah. And, and, and I'm just going to backtrack to briefly, you spoke about the commonalities of a near-death experience. What are the commonalities? Yes. Um, well, for anybody who might have studied Wittgenstein, he talked about what you call a family resemblance. And the, if you look at hundreds and hundreds of cases, what you find is that there are about 15 common elements that crop up. And any one person may have three or four or five of these or 10 of them or some people the whole panoply of 15. And it seems to um, correspond roughly with how close to death they got, that the people who have these impossibly lengthy cardiac arrests, like 15 minutes or 40 minutes, as, as I knew one woman, uh, talk about the more detailed things. But 
basically the, the framework is that people say that they often hear the doctor say something like, oh my God, he's dead, or we've lost him, or words to that effect. But from their point of view, I hear people say often that, as I've heard one woman say, I remember back in the 70s, she said, I have never been so alive as when I heard that doctor say I was dead. <laughs> I love that. that's people get it. They say, like, far from a dim diminution of your consciousness, that your consciousness expands. And people say that they seem to leave their physical bodies and they look and they can see, not with vision as you and I are knowing it. This, this is a sharper kind of experience that they have to call seeing. But they say they become, they become aware of their, dot, their body there on the table and um, they can sort of read the thoughts of the doctors and nurses and other people who are present, sort of getting the idea that these people think they're dead. And um, after a while, they realize this is something to do with death. And they talk about um, entering into a passageway of some sort, which they describe as a tunnel or a tube. And they go down that tunnel and, and come out on the other side into an incredibly brilliant and warm and loving light. And uh, they say, nobody can ever describe this. That the most common thing people say is, no matter how well educated or <clears throat> eloquent they may be, they say, I just don't have the words for this. There's, and, um, but in, the way they try to express it to us, they say that they become aware of them. Relatives or friends of theirs who have already passed away seem to be there almost as a greeting committee. It is, they say it's not like you see the physical body of the person, but they're all of the personality and the feelings and the memories are there. And that as this, that, it, that then as it's often described, everything else sort of disappears and they find themselves surrounded by a sort of three-dimensional holographic panorama that time stands still. And they say that everything you've ever done is there instantly. And you, you can see each action you did and you remember yourself doing it, but you also, at that point, you are in the consciousness of the person with whom you interacted. So that if you see yourself doing something mean to someone else, then you feel the sad feelings. And, or if you see yourself doing a loving action, you feel the good feelings you brought about. This is often goes on in the presence of a being that people describe as a being of complete compassion, of love, who knows everything about you. Christians tend to say Christ. Um, Jews tend to say God or an angel. Um, some people just say a being of light and that this, this review of your life is conducted in the presence of this being who sort of, it, they say it's not at all like judgment. A lot of people go into this sort of geared to be judged. Yes. And that's, that's their mindset when they're in this, but they're, they're surprised that this being they're with it doesn't look at it as judgment, but is more like education. <clears throat> like, and, and the, there, again, there are no words, but people say that the thought that comes is how have you um, lived your life or what have you done that you want to show me or, but it's the, the impetus of the question is plainly on love that, you know, people chase all sorts of things. I chase knowledge. Some people chase power or fame or money, but whatever they, they've been chasing in life. They say that what comes out in this is that what this thing we're in called life is all about ultimately is to learn to love. And um, so some people, then how they get back? Well, some people say they don't know how they got back. There, there was uh, just a transition and suddenly they were back in their body and they don't know how they got back. Other people say they were given a choice. Mm -hmm. uh, you can either stay in this light or you can go back under those conditions, almost everybody gives the same reason to go back and let's say they, they say that uh, for me, I would rather have stayed, but I chose to come back because of my young children is the most common reason. 
And a third group of people say that they were told they have to go back. It's like, it's not your time yet. You've got things left to complete. And when they come back is where it gets interesting, I suppose, from the point of view of psychiatry, because um, you see people just transformed in a very dramatic way on this. Yes. And, you know, and um, Dr. Ritchie, I think, was the finest human being I ever knew. I mean, he had you know, he could explode sometimes. I'm not saying he was a saint, but just the character of that person was so wonderful. And I've seen that in so many people who've had these experiences that it um, transforms them where they really are very loving and gentle and thoughtful people. So that's the scenario. And um, what does it mean? Well, I've, I've, um, I, I can tell you more what it doesn't mean. I mean, it's not anything to do with oxygen deprivation to the yeah. brain. Because number one, it, it, like I said, it, it happens to people who are standing there at the bedside too, that as the person in the bed dies, the bystander may feel that they join the experience of their dying loved one. And I've heard people say that they get out of their body and they lift up toward this light with their the their dying grandmother. Um, one of my own uh, professors in medical school, uh, my first year in medical school, told me about trying to resuscitate her mother unsuccessfully. But as uh, her mother died, my professor herself <clears throat> got out of her body and went toward this light and saw saw all these things. So it's it's a genuine mystery, and it it's. Um, been in Western civilization from the very beginning. This We learned about this in the 70s because by that time, the techniques of cardiopulmonary resuscitation were such that lots and lots of people were brought back. But this is a fixture in history and Plato and Democritus, who sort of figured out that there were atoms, were very puzzled about this. And, um, and so that's the basic sketch of the, you know, what happens to us when we almost die. Yes, well, it's, and it's a fascinating subject. Thank you so much for detailing that so beautifully. When, as you mentioned, when people return from a, a, a near-death experience, they're fundamentally changed, profoundly mm -hmm. changed, their whole life changes. Um, I guess it, it, statistics show many of them separate from partners and, and even children have stated that their mother or their father are just different people, better people, but yeah. completely different. Another very common after effect is to pursue their education. Mm. Um, very often I hear from people that in this life review, that when they see scenes in which they were learning something, <clears throat> this being of light sort of focuses on this and that the, um, the thought they get was that this doesn't stop when you die. That is, I've heard people say that this process of learning goes on eternally. And it's like I've had quite a number of people with the extremely lengthy cardiac arrest to talk about seeing a whole dimension that seems to be just like an institution of higher learning. It's like um, a man said that um, if you try to imagine Caltech and MIT and Yale and Harvard and Princeton and all of them wrapped up into one, you can hardly even get a sense of what this is like, that it's a, a dimension of people who are um, intent on pursuing knowledge. It's very, very interesting. And, and it's also been claimed by many or many needed experiences that they um, come back with sort of certain gifts, psychic gifts. Yes, I've heard this. Um, well, I'm sure you have. You're the expert. <laughs> yeah, it's. I, I remember a woman named Frances Stokes, and that was the first person I ever heard this from. And she was saying to me, she said that after this experience, she she actually was the receptionist of a physician in Georgia, and uh, who my dad knew, and. Um, People say that after this, you have a sort of sixth sense about people. She said that when she would get on the elevator with people, she could kind of sense what is going on in their lives and, and such. Yeah. 
And, uh, and then also another thing that's very important about this is um, people say that you're still yourself, that, you, you know, you see this vision of the importance of love. And yet that it's very difficult to put this into practice in this realm. Um, as, as I like to put it, it's very hard to get through the average day without wanting to choke at least one person. And that <laughs> doesn't change. That you're, you know, you've seen this vision and you're still saddled with your human instincts. And, and so what that seems to do from my observations of people is that it puts them on a genuine quest to um, like a spiritual quest. I, I just seen remarkable um, transformations in people like this. A, a woman I got to know very well who her sisters told me that before this experience, she never read anything except romance novels. And after this, she became quite a scholar of religious studies. And she would, uh, when she came to my house to visit us, she would read my philosophy books, philosophy books and psychology books and so on, or uh, texts on the history of religion. So it does have a profound impact on people. Yes. And, and you mentioned just uh, previously shared death experiences. What is a yeah. shared death? And that's another fascinating um, It is. Subject. That was situation I was describing earlier where um, people at the bedside uh, who are there in the presence of somebody else who dies that as the person dies they will experience this themselves even including by the way the life review I and and for years wow. I thought well surely this is only people who are very close to the dying individual but a few years ago I got a communication from a physician who was called to the ER to resuscitate a patient he had never laid eyes on. And he said, as he was resuscitating this man, that he saw, he saw the man's life sort of flash up around him and saw these things. So this is, you know, it's, it's some people are just very uncomfortable with the fact that there are things in our world that are very difficult to put into any sort of accepted framework. But to me, what changed, I think the, a big pivotal event in my professional life was when I was seven years old and I was, um, astronomy was my gig. <clears throat> and I remember specifically looking through a telescope one night and having the thought as I'm sure many people watching this have had this same thought, but I remember thinking, well, how big is this thing we're in, right? Mm -hmm. So my mind went out to the wall, right? Yeah, but yeah. then you get to thinking, well, doesn't there have to be something on the other side of a wall? But the only other intuitively obvious prospect is that it goes on forever and never and ever. And that doesn't make any sense either. So a, a big transformative event at my, in my childhood at that time was reading Lewis Carroll and an author that you don't know in Australia, but you really should. It's Dr. Seuss who is um, the American... I know Z Dr. Zeus. Oh, yeah. I love Dr. Zeus. <laughs> yeah, you know, Dr. Seuss, and hold on to your hat, Louis. I love, I love, I, I think I had all of his books. Oh, my God. Oh, I love them. His books have sold 600 million copies. Wow. They're mind-bending. And so those were the two, you know, that nonsense and the literary sense of Carol and Dr. Seuss. Mm. And... Um, the astronomy were the sort of formative interest in my life, which then when I went to college, I naturally gravitated to be a philosophy major. I've just got this visual image and, and I believe he didn't do all the drawings, but all the incredible drawings of the, you know, the nonsensical, yes. whether you'd call them animals or characters in the books, they, were, they really stretched the imagination and it's so important to think outside the box of things we don't understand. Many people don't ask themselves questions that they don't know the answer to. They don't. It's, for some reason, people are afraid of it. It's what I know that scares me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm not so scared. What I don't know is fascinating. But um, it's, um, I, I think that that is the major blockade that keeps us from thinking rationally about life after death is that we're scared of things that are unintelligible. But to me, that just draws my interest 
And uh, that's, that's been true in the religious tradition too. In the Christian tradition, it's the um, glossolalia or speaking in unknown tongues when people utter nonsense syllables that mm -hmm. are not in any or grammatical order over and over until you propel yourself into an ecstatic state. Or in the Eastern traditions, koans, like what is the sound of one hand clapping, which are literally unintelligible once the student puts their mind to it, it eventually triggers their consciousness over into a sort of translogical state. Just such an interesting, and it, you know, sometimes things that we, you're right, things that we, well, you, you, you fear things, you know, many people fear things that they don't know, the future, um, uncertainty, it, it's definitely, um, I always used to think I'd love an Excel spreadsheet of the rest of my life. I don't anymore. <laughs> no. no, I understand that desire, but I think that it's, it's arranged in the best way. You know, I think that the, um, some people actually in their near-death experiences do get a flash forward. And it seems to really uh, create a really interesting situation in their lives. I've heard a number of those people who, saw what was going to happen to them in their lives when they were very young and then it sort of magically got fulfilled as they they grew up yes a concept of time is a fascinating subject uh, and yeah. not only premonitions of their future but premonitions of the future of the country or the future of earth time is just really i love what aristotle i had sort of reached this same thought myself when I read it in Aristotle as an undergraduate, but he was talking about how weird time is and how unreal it is. He says it consists of the past, the present, and the future. And he said, but the past doesn't exist, and the future doesn't exist, and how in the world can you hold on to the present? You know, it dissolves as you watch it. So time is a great illusion. And and as I did geriatric psychiatry for a while before I went into forensics ultimately, but I did geriatric psychiatry for a while with really, you know, eloquent people who were in this, the kind of mute movers and shakers in this particular town. And that's something that often comes up with people as they grow older, they become aware that time doesn't make any sense, you know? And especially in these near-death experiences, people say there's no such thing as time, that they see everything they've ever done in this panorama, but no, no time passes. Yes, we, say, we tend to perceive time as a linear forward motion or a passing of events. I'm coming more to the belief that everything's already happened. Yes, that's one way of looking at it, I guess. I can't get my mind around that or any other, you know, way of looking at it. All I know is that this something is fishy here, <laughs> that what we measure by the clocks and stuff like that. Well, I remember in college, I remember reading in Newton's Principia, my second semester, absolute true mathematical time of itself. And in, in itself and of its own nature flows equably without relation to anything external. And I remember specifically reading that sentence and saying, wow, you know, Newton really had it down. And then the next month we read Einstein. Relativity. You know, it's not true. It sounds so rational what Newton says, but as soon as you start thinking about it, it makes time makes no sense. Yeah, it, it's very plausible. Wait, do you have a photographic memory to remember all I these? I don't know if I do or not. I think it's more interest. You know, I just, I, I'm just so fascinated with it, what my subjects. And so I think that my fascination sort of imprints it in the memory more than I, I don't know whether well, I love how your mind works. <laughs> it's fantastic. Do you have any um, examples of interesting um, predictions or premonitions of future events that near-death experiences have had? Uh, yes. I remember one woman who's an executive at a major company who told me when she was in college, she had a cardiac arrest. And in the, her 
during the cardiac arrest, she had a near-death experience in which she saw her life come by and she married this guy and then had a couple of kids. And so then when they brought her back, she was trying to say to the doctor, I can't be here. I've got a husband and two kids. <laughs> oh, sure. So she quickly realized she shouldn't talk about that. But then just as it happened, and you know, it happened in life just that way. She met the guy and um, then had the kids. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I've heard this from so many people. Very, very interesting. You talk about your... I love, I love your term, chasing knowledge. Mm -hmm. And that's led you, I guess, to where we are today, um, the pursuit of knowledge. Yeah. Why, why do you, I mean, as you said, some people chase riches or fame. Why, why knowledge? What does it do for you? I don't really know, except I'm just always, my whole life I've been curious. Like, um, it's to me, curiosity and creativity. Those, in terms of what you would think of as professional things, that's what it's all about. And um, to me, I just, what is astonishing to me that I see people who apparently are just not curious and I just can't figure out what is that like not to be curious? I can't imagine it. And I was, um, I was a forensic psychiatrist. I worked in a, in a uh, maximum security unit with mostly paranoid schizophrenic killers, but mass murderers and occasional weird serial killers, not the regular sociopath ones, but the ones that were just kind of weird, we would get sometimes. And you know, many times people ask me, you know, weren't you scared? I was about to ask that question. Yeah. And I said, well, no, it never occurs to you to be scared because it's just, you just want to find out about this stuff. And I remember every morning going into work, it was always like, what are we going to see today? And like, what have the police brought in for us? And so on. It was just, uh, but I'm just curiosity is, um, it's fun. I also, when I had that experience as a kid with my astronomy, mm -hmm. what came along with it was that I realized that even though I wanted to know that I would never know much of anything, Right. I mean, when you're thinking about the interstellar distances and so on, with that came the realization that I won't get much knowledge. And so that's a very good thing for me because I don't I don't care that I don't have very much of it because, I mean, I just consume books all the time. But I realized that no matter how much you learn, it's just not even a hair's breadth of what there is to learn so so it's very satisfying in that i'm i'm always fascinated by people for example who have ideologies like they've got to have everything in some sort of system where and um i just that must be such a bore i mean i just how, what could that always that, that thinking you've got to have an answer to everything i mean i i just don't get it so there's, you know, a lot about other people, even though I was a psychiatrist, it's people just don't make sense in very powerful ways, I think. And sometimes, and many times, it's okay to say, I don't know. Yeah, I'm happy to say, I don't know. But, you know, some people would do anything to have to, you know, to avoid saying, I don't know. And it's like I said, I don't. I really appreciate all these wonderful remarks that people have made about how much my book Life After Life has helped them and so on. And that touches me deeply and I'm grateful. And at the same time, I can say that I, I don't have a noble purpose in my work. To me, it's just that I'm fascinated with uh, what is. And, um, you know, I wanna find out what is. But how wonderful at the same time um, in pursuing your curiosity that you're offering people so much um, comfort. Yeah, yeah, that, that is gratifying. As I said, you know, it's, it's nice to be able to use your knowledge to help other people. So does it, does it bother you that some people don't have curiosity? It's, it puzzles me. I just... Like I try to imagine myself into that world and I just don't get it. It's like, I just don't understand it. It's like, why are some people not curious? 
I have a wonderful friend who's actually quite bright. And, uh, you know, the latest findings in astronomy is that, well, I won't go through the whole deal, but it looks like there are probably about in the known universe on the order of a billion trillion Earth-like planets. So I was talking about that with this friend of ours a few years ago, and, and I, was, I just immediately started thinking about the prospect of other civilizations out there. And she said, Raymond, why would you be interested in that? And I was just astonished, like, how could somebody not be curious about that? I, I don't know. <laughs> <clears throat> yes, curiosity is, is an incredible thing. That would probably take me on to your, your philosophy PhD focus on unintelligibility. That's a bit of a tongue twister. And your latest yeah. book, Making Sense of Nonsense. What nonsense yes, teaches us me, about consciousness and altered states of being, which let sounds me show it to you because of all my books, I'm most proud of this one. Oh, that looks and great. Um, and it's what it's about is the reason why we can't think logically about the question of life after death was stated most brilliantly by David Hume, who said, by the mere light of reason, it seems difficult to prove the immortality of the soul. He said some new species of logic is required for that purpose and some new faculties of the mind that they may enable us to comprehend that logic. And actually him was probably being ironic. What he meant was that it's impossible. But I say that it's possible that we can actually, that what prevents us from thinking logically about life after death is that we think of unintelligibility or nonsense as a blockade, that there's nothing behind it, mm -hmm. right? But I can show you very clearly that, that nonsense changes, that let's go back in your mind to 1950 and be a, an intelligent, well-educated person of 1915 and listen to these three sentences, okay? Sentence number one, all four of Ethel's grandparents perished and were lost in a shipwreck long before her mother and father were born. In 1915, that would be unintelligible. Now add the knowledge of DNA and its role in heredity, the possibility of gene editing and cloning, and, and we can foresee a scenario, it hasn't happened yet, where we could go down to the wreck and get the genetic material. So, so what was nonsense in 1915 has not happened yet in 2020, but we can conceive how it is. Or listen to this in 1915. Two women got married to each other at City Hall yesterday. Unintelligible today, it's perfectly intelligible. Or listen to this one in 1915. I watched a movie on my phone this morning. And yes. <laughs> yeah. And so it's the same thing with life after death. It doesn't make any sense by the logic of 2020, but by reformatting our minds to think logically about things that don't make sense, we can prepare ourselves so that when subsequently we happen to have a near-death experience, we will be able to put it into new language that everybody else can understand. And I've been waiting for that for quite a while, but it happened not too long ago. A very eminent scientist and artist who had taken my nonsense workshop several years before happened to have a near, three near-death experiences. He was in, oh, just a horrible situation, H1N1, 60 days in the hospital, had his leg amputated from gangrene of it. But Ann tried to tell me about this. His voice suddenly perked up and he said, and Raymond, he said, when I was over there, he said, my mind went back to your nonsense seminar. And he said, and I saw what you're, what you're saying is true. He said that you can't understand how that world is connected to this world unless you take the unintelligibility axis into account. And what we've done in the West, it, and it's largely due to my dear friend, Aristotle, who predicated the logic that you and I are using right now on literal meaning. But sentences like there is life after death, they don't have a literal meaning. But by re 
reworking our minds to think logically about things that are unintelligible, we can open up entirely new ways of thinking about this and actually preparing ourselves in advance to, to be able to talk about near-death experiences in a new way when we get back. That's fantastic. And we're always, um, I mean, do you see the evolution of humans expanding their mind and opening their consciousness as we progress? I won't say the future because we were talking about time, but um, in yeah. moments of yes. the next moments, yeah. I'll say the next moments. That has happened many times in history. Uh, you know, we take for granted the concept of truth. That is that some things are the case no matter what anybody thinks about it. And so we think that must be literally prehistoric, but no, that is dated to Parmenides, the ancient Greek philosopher, <clears throat> who was the first person to be able to articulate this. And it came to him in a sort of mystical experience or, or Descartes even. When Descartes was young, the, all, the two things they knew for sure was, was ge Euclidean geometry, right, and algebra, right? And so one night, Descartes prayed to God to send him the, a way to find out the truth. So that night, he said he was visited three times by the spirit of truth. And what came out of that was analytic geometry. And this, this happens repeatedly where... Although in the West, we think of spirituality as on one end and logic is over on the other end. In actual fact, these, there have been these big experiences where logic and the, and the spiritual kind of come together to lead to, lead to new insights. And um, I think we can do it. I mean, it's, it's very easy, as I've learned for years, to, to get our minds to the point where we can think logically about things that don't make sense. And uh, I taught a course in this and I had my students, I wrote these exercises, which enable to students to reformat their minds so that you see that things previously that you thought were unintelligible, actually there's a new way of looking at them. So I'm very excited about this because I think that we're on the verge of having entirely new techniques that enable us to probe not just the question of life after death, but other big questions that have up to now been, um, you know, intractable. Well, I, I'm getting excited talking to you about it. The book sounds amazing and it's almost like reframing our way of thinking or readapting how we perceive and think as we walk in this world. Yes. It, like, for example, um, the common sense view, right, is that nonsense is sort of undifferentiated nothingness. But I can show you very quickly, for example, that there are different types of nonsense. Like, listen to these three sentences. Twas brilliant in the slithy toves did gyre and gimble and the wave. Well, you recognize that as nonsense, but now listen to this. Holiness breeds the vestigial lipstick of spontaneity. That's nonsense, but it's a different type. And now listen to this. Uh, that cannibal that you men just ate was the last one in this city. That's unintelligible too, but it's a different type. There's at least 70 different types. And it's very easy for students to, <clears throat> to learn how to write these different types and to see the differences. And when, this, when you do this, it opens up channels of your mind that you didn't know you have. So what I'm saying is that Hume's criterion, which was right, that what we need is a new species of logic and new faculties of the mind. Well, that's not impossible. As a matter of fact, we can do it. And when we do it, we, there, it opens up whole new pathways to think about the biggest question of existence. Is there a life after death? I, uh, I, just, I just got a, a word and I'm almost going to call you the curiosity ambas ambassador. <laughs> you're encouraged basically in very simple terms you're asking people to be curious which is because yeah. it's fine and 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 again wonderful 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 i've asked all the questions for this is there something you'd particularly like to talk to the passion harvest audience about raymond well i i would like to talk to with you about it for a moment, Louisa, because I'm, I can talk to you all day. <laughs> your interest in 
passion. And I am, you know, when I was always tried to figure out with my psychiatry patients what their passion in life was. And what I saw recurrently was that people would come in to me who were famous for something mm -hmm. that I would always find as I talked to them that what they were famous for was not really what they were interested in. And that what that what what they were known for was something that came from some other interest. And that's that's often how it happens that um, I mean, I guess even though I wrote in Life After Life that I came to the question of near-death experiences from the from being a logician and a and interested in the philosophy of language. That's that's where it came from, and um, you know because if you think about it, what people with near-death experiences tell us is that there was no time and no space, and that there are no words for it. But the closest they can get to it is to say, "I got out of my body. I went through a tunnel into a light." I met my deceased relatives. I saw my life pass and review. I came back to my body and returned to life. Well, that's a travel narrative, right? But a travel narrative doesn't really have any coherent meaning if there's no time and space. So the fact that it's nonsense in 2020, you see, doesn't mean that it's gonna be nonsense five years from now. And I don't think it will, because I think that we're on the verge now of opening up parts of our mind that it will enable us to think about not just this, but lots of big other questions. You know, physicists will tell you that the two most powerful explanatory systems ever devised are the Einstein's general theory of relativity and the quantum theory. But the difficulty, as they all say, is that if you try to integrate those two sets of equations, what you get is nonsense, right? And that shows that in physics and science, nonsense is a placeholder. Like it's something that we hold on to expecting that in the future, it's going to, to make sense. And I think that's exactly where we are with life after death. It's very hard to comprehend in 2020, but I think we're on the verge and in a few years, we're gonna be able to actually think rationally about the biggest question of all. Well, how exciting and certainly the biggest question because it happens to each and every one of us. That is inevitable. We all die. Yes, yes. And I'm, um, you know, the more you know about the, this kind of experience, the, the odder this world that we're in becomes. And, um, <laughs> One of my favorite writers when I was in high school was Ellie Wiesel. I don't, you're a little young to remember him, but Thank he, was you. A, he was a scholar to, um, who was in Auschwitz, but then he, he escaped after the war and he was a Nobel Prize winner in literature, as I recall. And I loved Ellie's works. And one, in one of his books, he says, um, God made man because he loves stories. And that really set me to thinking about the whole notion of personal identity. Like, what is your personal identity? And I think that Ellie Wiesel's thought was kind of right, that it's basically we are our stories, right? And that um, it's, I noticed as in my geriatric career, I heard this all the time from very eloquent older people that as they look back on their life, the older they got, the more the impression they developed as they looked back that their life had been a kind of script or story. And I'm reaching that point myself now. And I, then a Hindu friend of mine actually said that that's what the Hindus have come to as well is that this thing we're living in is a kind of theater and we go through these different stories and we learn about ourselves and reality. and it's all focused on some eventual um, kind of union, which we can hardly conceive from this point of view. That's a wonderful way of putting it. I, th I think we can choose our own stories. And I, I just my personal opinion that we, um, to, to, to a large extent, create our stories before we come here. I wonder, I do, I do kind of think that. I do, I mean, I'm beginning to get a sense of that. Um, 
and just from some really remarkable events that happened in my life. And, you know, and I, I hear this from people all the time in psychotherapy when they really get familiar and comfortable with you. They will. So a lot of people in their older years will talk about this, how the older you get, this sense develops that this world we're in is sort of theatrical in its makeup. And um, I don't understand quantum theory enough to even talk about it, but I know that they, it makes sense to me in a very real way that what they say is that things don't really pop into existence until you look at them, right? And mm -hmm. as weird as that seems, I sort of get it. I do. I, it, it sort of makes sense to me in terms of some of the things I've heard from people with near-death experiences. Yes, so also uh, potentially that means let's not take what we see around us so seriously. Yes, and then it's so hard not to, you know, it's it like is. life is so immersive, right? In a, in a philosophical reverie, I can sort of stand back and realize this is just like a story. But then some personal annoyance intrudes, <laughs> right? If I'm back, I'm immersed again. I can't imagine you getting annoyed. Oh, yes, yes. I mean, I'm just, um, you know, it's just all kinds of things. Or like I had a gout attack a couple of weeks ago. Or, and, you know, it's, it's, um, <clears throat> or, or, um, you know, it's just like life comes at us relentlessly. And this, this position that the Hindus have, and which many people come to in their life, of this sort of story like nature of life. You can only maintain that for a little period of time, and then some event takes place that you have to come to terms with. It's easy to come to the point of view that it's a theater, but it's easy to main. It's very difficult to maintain that when you're immersed in it. To remain equanimous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Um, I think, you know, I've just loved talking to you. You've been such an insight. And, of, of course, for anyone that's watching or listening to this show, all your details will be in the show notes for anyone to connect with you and your books. And Ray, Dr. Raymond Moody, it's been an absolute honour and a delight to oh, speak with you. Oh, it's to be with you, Louisa. I've been only to Australia one time. It was in 1978. But, wow, what a place. It's oh, a great country. God. Yeah, yeah. Just have so many good memories of Australia. <laughs> well, thank you again for your patience. I'm so sorry to keep you waiting and enjoy dinner with your wife. <laughs> thank you so much. It's been an absolute thank pleasure. You. Thank bye, you. Bye, so Raymond. <laughs> bye. And bye to all our viewers, too. Thank you so much for watching. That is the end of our passionate episode. Thank you so much for listening and please subscribe, leave a review, tell your friends and spread the passion. As always, every day, may you be more and more passionate.